You're listening to The Savings Tip Jar with Dom Beattie and Harrison Asprey, powered by savings.com.au, your home of consumer finance news, guides and product comparisons. G'day, welcome to another episode of The Savings Tip Jar podcast with myself, Dom Beattie, and as always, Harrison Asprey. Welcome, Harrison. Thanks, Dom. It's good to be here once again for another cracking episode, and this one was I must admit, was organised on the fly, but sometimes they're the best kind of episodes to do, aren't they? So um, I should mention that we've got uh, Tony Weber. Uh, he's the CEO of the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries. So every month, the FCAI uh, publishes car sales data, um, and there's a bit of news floating around in in that space at the moment. So um, yeah, without further ado, we'll uh, we'll get into that a bit later. But um, yeah, first of all, we'll get into the news. So um, the first news cab off the rank is that the Bank of Sydney has raised term deposit rates uh, up to 5.5%. Um, and this sort of follows a bit of movement in the industry despite uh, no RBA rate hike. Uh, so Judo has a six-month term deposit of 5.45. Um, and the competition DOM seems to be most prevalent in the sort of six to 12-month space mm-hmm. um, with rates sort of hovering around that 53 to 5.5%. Mm-hmm. So um, it might not be too much longer till we see rates over this and maybe even nudging 6%. Yeah, potentially. Um, it's interesting that we're seeing these moves in the sort of short-term TD space because we mm. haven't seen much movement from the longer-term TD space. I've been keeping an eye on the um, the RBA's average uh, interest rates for uh, three-year term deposits uh, and it is barely budged uh, mm. since like March or something despite all these um, RBA rate rises that we've had. So... I don't know why banks aren't increasing the longer term rates. Maybe they think rates will have, have almost peaked and will start coming down mm. soon. So I just think it'd be great to lock in a term deposit at 6% for three or four years. Yeah. Because if in the future um, if you didn't need savings accounts are only offering, say, you know, 2 or 3%, you're still sitting pretty earning mm. that 6%. You'll feel pretty good. But, you know, I guess, uh, you know, locking in uh, 5.5% for... Well, that's an annual rate, um, even though it's a six-month term. So mm. you won't be earning five point five percent. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, you'll be earning yeah the equivalent of, of half that over that that six months. But uh, still, still not too bad. Um, you wonder if, if a lot of people are maybe uh, backing out of the share market with with rates basically on, like risk-free rates available, mm. uh, guaranteed. Comes with the, the government guarantee, of course, up yeah. to two hundred fifty thousand, um, earning you five and a half percent. Mm. Why not? Why risk investing in in shares that could potentially you know yeah. could could earn to you maybe more? Maybe get seven or eight. Could also, but also not. lose you money too. Yeah. Um, five point five percent is is pretty good. So yeah, interesting to see what what happens um, in in the future in this space. Whether we see um, banks continuing to compete with each other and offer stronger and stronger rates in this space, or if we start seeing those longer term rates start to go down which of course would be an indicator that banks think there's going to be rate cuts Mm. very soon so definitely keeping a close eye on that space uh in other news uh we've seen that uh, nab has become the latest bank to announce changes to its serviceability criteria making refinancing easier for select customers uh, so from the 21st of July, NAB will take what they say is a refreshed approach to certain refinancing applications. So what they said exactly, Harrison, was uh, we will be refreshing our existing approach to support eligible refinance customers 
in switching to NAB who are considered a good credit risk but may not fully meet standard lending criteria. So they're mm. not being too specific about, um, you know, whether they're doing away entirely with the uh, APRA's guidance on, on using a 3% mm. buffer uh, when assessing whether people can afford to repay their mortgages. Uh, we've seen the likes of Combank and, and Westpac making similar changes, and but Combank was a bit more specific, saying they will, in some instances, use just a 1% buffer. Mm. NAB hasn't specified exactly what they're saying, what, what what buffer they're going to apply, if any, but they're just saying people who, who may not usually meet their, the standard lending criteria may be reconsidered if they meet uh, certain other criteria. Mm. I mean, like certainly at a public sort of level, um, it seems like this this decision was, uh, dare I say, a little bit rushed compared to the other banks. So like Westpac was a bit more explicit in saying you need, you know, X credit score, you need to be this type of customer. Where, um, with Combank, it was um, much the same as well. Mm. Um, and I think Combank was the only one that actually said, hey, we're lowering some buffer rates to 1%, mm-hmm. um, whereas NAB's just been a bit more vague. I'm, I'm sure there's a certain criteria that may not be exactly, you know, public knowledge or... Mm. Um, at least out there in the open. Um, and then also as well, uh, I contacted Unloan, which is uh, CBA's digital uh, refinance only um, lending arm, I guess. Uh, and they frequently come up as one of the most competitive mm. lenders in, in the industry at the moment. Um, so I, I contacted Unloan and they said, they came back to me and said that um, they're applying that 1% buffer rate um, from, well, last week. Um, and then Westpac Group subsidiaries, so you know Bank of Melbourne, Bank SA, Saint are George. also applying it as yep. well. So and Saint, yeah, Saint George, good point, um, are applying that that buffer as well. So um, I'm not sure what NAB's thinking with Ubank, um, but mm. yeah, it remains to be seen. Interesting, it, it, yeah, it we might, forget Ubank. It might apply to Ubank it's as well. So good news for refinances. What existing borrowers refinancing? You know those mm. potential mortgage prisoners. You know, as I, I was quoted in. Um, one particular media outlet. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of prison, providing the <laughs> prison metaphors. <laughs> they're they're you know? throwing them the the key to unshackle them yeah. from the, the prison the, block. The mortgage Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it, it is good news for mortgage holders. Um, and we'll move to a slightly uh, two sides of the same coin, to be honest. Um, so we'll move to rental prices now. So median rents in Australia rose two and a half percent in the three months to June. So um, this is according to uh, CoreLogic data. Um, so after a 3.9% increase in Melbourne, it's no longer the cheapest capital city to rent. So um, that crown now goes to Adelaide at a median price of $549 a week. And that encompasses um, both units and houses as well. Mm. Uh, Melbourne was not far behind at 551. Uh, and the other cities were, were in the mix there as well. Uh, but Sydney uh, was the most expensive, perhaps unsurprisingly, at seven thirty-three a week, mm. and that's for units and houses combined as well. So, it would have been a lot higher for houses. So, um, houses themselves are cheapest in Hobart, in the southern capital there, and um, you know uh, the CoreLogic, the guys at CoreLogic have said that uh, with you know more migration coming, um, and with a lack of supply in the market, there might not be an easing of of rental prices um anytime soon and we heard that last week too with prop tracks cameron kusher so mm. a more more of a squeeze for renters in the short to medium term dom 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm just looking at those median rent figures in the capital cities. I didn't realize they were that high. Uh, particularly Sydney, seven hundred and thirty-three dollars. Mm. It just makes the the job of you know saving up that that housing deposit that much harder. Particularly if you're living in Sydney, paying that amount of rent, and and plus you know the rising costs of of you know your groceries, your fuel, your electricity, it, it, and and then you know still our house prices getting further out of reach in Sydney, yeah. where prices are still growing. I mean, it's hard enough for me saving up a deposit when I was living in a you know, rat, rat and cockroach infested um, <laughs> little studio above a fish and chip shop paying 310 a week. If you're, if you're, you know, renting a pretty basic apartment in Sydney that is, you know, say, you know, maybe not the medium, maybe $600, it's mm. still very difficult. So We talk about rent stress too, right? That's commonly defined as a third of your income. So, you know, you times that by three roughly. Mm. Um, and you need to be earning, you know, more than 1800 bucks a week just oh, to absolutely. afford it. Yeah, you'd hope yeah. the, you know, the, 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 the wages in Sydney are, like, are compensating that higher cost of living. Mm. Um, I mean, if you've, got, if you've got the luxury of living with your parents, you you'd might have to take up that option because, uh, yeah, pen, spending that amount of rent per week uh, would, it would be absolutely killing your budget. Yeah. Um, Anyway, moving on from one depressing topic to another, um, <laughs> household spending uh, index uh, from Combank has uh, has fallen uh, 1.7% in June off the back of a lull in home buying intentions, which fell 26.2%. Wow. Uh, and that's uh, at the same time with as ABS data for May revealing discretionary, discretionary spending uh, has um, fallen 0.6% compared to May last year. So spending is uh, is obviously dropping on the back of, well, I mean, it's got to be off the back of surely a lot of these interest rate rises. They're hurting a lot of um, uh, existing borrowers. Uh, naturally, can't be spending as much on discretionary goods. Um, so yeah, with that in mind, uh, with those further rate hikes potentially incoming, uh, Combank actually expects consumer spending to, to slow even further this year and even well into 2024. Um, but interestingly, compared to June last year, uh, motor vehicle spending intentions were up two-thirds, uh, so or 66%. Mm. Um, and this was the strongest spending category. So up 66% in the 12 months to June. So, I mean, while people are cutting back on, on spending in, in a lot of areas, it doesn't seem to be applying to, to cars at the moment. Yeah, I mean, we can't afford $10 lunches out, but can suddenly afford a, a brand new Tesla or whatever. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but it's a bit of an interesting one. And we'll, we'll talk to our guests later about this, exactly why. But um, to me, it, it seems like a bit of a mixture of people who are going, nah, buying houses too hard interest rates have gone up too much i would put that money towards a new car maybe quiet quitting i think yeah. we're hearing the whole quiet, quiet quitting, quitting the housing, the, market. The housing <laughs> market yeah um you've quit your job now quit the houses <laughs> but um and then uh, as well there's probably a, a bit of a um uh, a uh, sort of wealth effect as well with people who have bought their house in covid 2020 mm. 2021 they're managing repayments okay i guess and mm. now they're feeling comfortable enough to buy a car as well so yeah we'll get we'll get into that with our guest um Tony Weber, but yeah, another interesting car sales data month. Yeah, absolutely. So that wraps up the main highlights for news this week. So we'll go straight into our fiscal focus segment with uh, Tony Weber. Let's go.
Now, amid this apparent cost of living crisis, uh, there's actually been a quite strong levels of car buying going on at the moment. Uh, new figures from the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries has revealed that Australian customers took delivery of over 124,000 new vehicles in June uh, to mark the end of the 2022-23 financial year. And this result marked an increase of 25% compared to June 2022. So joining us to discuss these figures and more is the uh, Chief Executive of the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries, Tony Weber. Tony, thanks for joining us on the Savings Tip Jar. Oh, my pleasure being here. Thanks for joining us, Tony. So um, we'll just go through the figures uh, that have come out recently for the June sales. So um, as I understand it, it was quite a strong month. Um, can you just talk through us about that and perhaps maybe why it was such a strong month? Well, the month had looked strong because June last year was, was weaker than normal. So this is a solid June, but it's not a record month. So that's the first point. The, the second point is a lot of these cars were ordered some time ago, some of them in 2022 and, in fact, some in 2021. So the decision to buy hasn't been made within the last six weeks. Like typically, the market is driven by. These were orders from some time ago. And I think the other third thing is many consumers of cars whilst the economic horizon has some dark clouds on it, not everyone's impacted by that. And only about 4 million Australians typically are in a cycle of buying a new car once every four years. Most people who buy cars in Australia can buy second-hand cars. So in some ways, the new car industry is insulated to a degree from the economic horizon. And so we saw some new figures come out from ComBank today regarding household spending intention. And it showed that while uh, the, the number of motor vehicle transactions and, and personal loan applications were, were lower in June, uh, this was actually offset by an increase in Google searches related to motor vehicles. Um, do you, would you have any idea why there would be uh, an increase in interest in, uh, in, in car, car sales at the moment? Well, I think people make decisions about where their savings are at and what they actually consume. And when people make car decisions about, especially the real estate market, quite often people decide not to go into the real estate market and then treat themselves to a new car. So I think that has an impact. And I think also, you know, when you look at activity, there's no doubt that part of the buying process, far more of that is online now than it ever has been in the past, and that continues to grow. We'll go back to those, you know, dark COVID times. Just how much of an impact did it have? You know, not in in that in in those few years of supply chain constraints, but we saw, you know, for example, um, it filtered through the used cars, where used car prices were sometimes even higher than than the uh, retail price of new cars. So, can you explain what impact COVID had on the uh, car industry and how we're seeing those effects play out today? And is this sort of like a a, a sort of back to normal, um, if you will. Yeah, there's a bit of catch up in all the numbers, I think, at the moment. During COVID, there were a number of issues that came into play and subsequent to it. Number one, the factories around the world, because of COVID, had to close. And that's not just the factories that produce cars, but it's also the supply chain factories that produce the parts that go into a car. So you can't sell a car, obviously, if the seat's not available for the vehicle. So you don't need So that that went on for some time. We also had at the same period of time a worldwide shortage of microprocessors. Now that affected motor vehicles and it affected all products 
that have an element of electronics in it in the modern day world. And hence, many cars could be partially built but not completed. So that also reduced the supply of vehicles, not just to Australia, but right around the world. And then once the factories came back online, there's been shipping issues because demand for cars has actually grown through COVID because people have moved away from public transport toward private transport because they feel safer in terms of their health outcomes. So all those factors put together really reduce the supply of new cars and hence in the market in Australia, used car prices went up. And now, Tony, in in some of these top car sale figures, we often see um, you know the, the top two or even three positions taken up by uh, popular Utes such as the Toyota Hilux and the Ford Ranger. But uh, these latest figures from June, we've actually seen the the Tesla Model Y has now broken up those top two positions and and have now taken second place ahead of the Ford Ranger. Um, what what's driving this this surge in, in Tesla sales? Well, I think. I think the market in Australia constantly evolves. We look at that, we see that over decades. And what we're seeing with the Tesla Model Y and also the Model 3 has sold in large volumes in certain months over the last three or four years, that where people can get their hands on that product, if it's a good product, people will buy from different segments. And hence, the smaller SUV segment is quite popular. That even as an electric vehicle, it sells in high numbers. And as you say, with 5,560 sales last month, the second biggest seller in the country. For sure. And we've seen lately uh, the arrival of some other pretty cheap EVs on the market, I think by some Chinese brands such as BYD and MG and so on. So how do you see these making a dent in the uh, in in traditional fuel vehicles and um and, and where do you see EVs ending up say by the end of this year or even into 2024 in terms of market share? Well well at the moment for the year to date EVs are around 7.8% of the market. And a lot of that's got to do with people are happy to buy EVs if they can afford it and it meets their lifestyle. But really at at around eight percent of the market you're really talking about the young adopters. I think we've got a long way to go in this market before the last 40% of purchases go to EVs because we need the infrastructure to support it. We need that infrastructure in the major cities, especially where people live in units and don't have a easy access to recharging. We need it in the outer regions of the capital cities where people typically drive larger distances on a daily basis and therefore need to recharge more regularly. And in regional rural Australia, especially on highways, there's real challenges to get the volume of recharging out there. I think the market will respond, but in the early stages, it's an argument about chicken and egg. How many charges are needed and how many people are actually buying EVs? So there's that balancing act. You're unlikely to buy an EV if you can't recharge the vehicle, and you're unlikely to invest in the recharging unless there's a, a volume of EVs out there to make your demand. So it's an interesting balance at the moment and something has to be worked through. And that's why I think in the early stages, it's really important that governments intervene and make investments in their charging network. That is absolutely essential that government takes up that role if we are going to transition to a low emissions environment. And Tony, we keep hearing about you know talk of there being dark clouds on the economic horizon, a potential recession 
around the corner. Uh, with that in mind, does that affect your uh, outlook for the uh, the car industry and, and like whether it can continue this this strong momentum in the through the rest of the year? We obviously are looking at what the economic horizon looks like, and we are obviously concerned, like everyone is in the Australian economy. But having said that, we do know that there's a very large order bank of unfilled cars. They need to be supplied to the market. Once that's done, we, we hope that the, that the economy can obviously transition through the current economic crisis. And we're hopeful that we will have a strong year for the rest of 2023 and we go into 24 with momentum. You mentioned a bit earlier um, about governments needing to do more to encourage maybe the uptake of, of electric vehicles. So we'll move slightly now to um, the luxury car tax. Um, so on, on that, what's your take on the LCT and are governments doing enough, uh, both, you know, federal and state to encourage the uptake of EVs through, you know, rebates and so on? What's your take on that? Yeah, well, well luxury car tax, if you look at it, the history of that, it was introduced to protect domestic manufacturing. That has now ceased. The only role the luxury car tax plays is it's a revenue base for the Treasury. And it's a very substantial revenue base. But as Dr. Henry said in his review of the taxation system, it fails the basic principles, the five basic principles of a good taxation system. So as a tax, it has no economic merit whatsoever. So what we need to do is remove it because all it is is it's a tax on technology, a tax on safety technologies that protect people, and it's a tax on low emission technologies, which are typically more expensive, but beneficial to both the owner and the broader economy. So I think it is time for the federal government to bite the bullet and eliminate the luxury car tax so that there is a better supply high-quality, safer, more environmentally-friendly vehicles on our roads. Tony Weber, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. Uh, thank you so much for your insights, and uh, thanks for joining us on the Savings Tip Chart. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Thanks, Tony. That was Tony Weber, the Chief Executive of the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries. Harrison, what do you think of that talk? Yeah, I thought he had some good points there as well. Um, particularly around the luxury car tax, which is a tax I and, and, and many others are against. But if you look back to the um, June car sales data, it's really sort of promising uh, or, or a bit of good news to see that um, car sales are so strong. And particularly, you know, there's been a bit of a, a surge in, uh, in electric vehicle sales as well. So um, if we look at the individual sales, so the Toyota Hilux was a top-selling vehicle with um, a touch over 6,000 units delivered. Um, so this data includes not only you know sales themselves, but also deliveries. So you could have ordered the car three months ago, mm. but you're not getting it till today. Um, and then the Tesla Model Y was the second best-selling car in June with um, more than 5,500. Um, and it was the first time an electric car has been so strong in the car sales department and the Model Y actually overtook the mighty Ford Ranger uh, which recorded uh, just over 5,300 sales and then it's interesting too Dom that um, out of the top 10 only one was not an SUV or a ute so that was the i30 down in ninth position um, so a lot of weekend warriors out on the roads here 
Mm. Yeah, there's that, but um, we often see the, the impact in these figures of you know businesses, so fleet car sales. Mm. Uh, so naturally, you know, a lot of businesses will will order your cars like Hiluxes and Ford Rangers because it's you know good. They make good fleet cars. Um, and I wonder whether we're going to start to see fleets of Teslas from Maybe. a lot of businesses in the near future. Um, also, I guess being the end of, you know, being June, the month of, of end of financial year, um, another th- another potential um, variable that we didn't discuss with, with Tony was uh, the impact of the um, instant asset write-off um, expiring. I believe yeah. uh, the... the the, the, the value of the instant asset write-off is being dramatically lowered mm. uh, this new financial year. Uh, so a lot of people taking advantage of that um, perhaps drove up these uh, these June car sales. So, yeah, that that's, you know, because you naturally look at these figures and you think, I mean, there's a lot of utes around, but there's not, there's not the, like that many where <laughs> yeah. everyone is driving a, a ute. Um, so, yeah, don't forget that uh, the, these figures do reflect um, business um, transactions as well uh, so yeah but definitely a good good chat good uh, insight from Tony Webber there we might get him on again in the yeah, near future I, I want to find out what car he drives or is he more of a motorbike man yeah um, you no, know, I did uh, find out from Harrison that uh, I actually cut him off cut off the chat a bit too early he was keen to, <laughs> to ask him ask him that one he's a busy man it's, it's yeah, okay yeah no um, we didn't want to take up too funny much if he drove Tony's something time. really wacko Mm. You know, or, he, or he didn't drive at all. He, he decided to cycle into work today. But yeah, no, maybe yeah. he drives a, a Morris Minor, something Maybe, yeah. We'll find like that out next time, eh? <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Mm. All right, so I think that brings us to an end of another episode of the Savings Tip Jar podcast. Uh, don't forget to send us uh, any feedback you might have. You can get in touch with us via our, our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or send us an email to inquiries at savings.com.au. That's inquiries with an E. Thank you very much, Harrison. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Let's cue the music. 